Thank you, uh, Jeff and Choir and Murray. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19? 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, we're going through in uh, Fairhope, uh, going through Mardi Gras. My being raised in Selma never got me ready for Mardi Gras, so I don't know what you're supposed to do other than catch beads and moon pies. And uh, so that's going on in Farrell. So we pushed past that. And that's been our, our week this past week, dealing with that. Um, it's a time that all of us kind of, or at least they frolic there in Mobile and New Orleans and Farrell. But there are times when life rises up and comes at us. And we want to know, is there something that I can hold on to that will kind of help me in the middle of that moment? And all of us will face those times. Nobody avoids those kind of times. They're there. And they're coming our way. And the Bible's very real about that. And it happens to even the greatest of faith. And we're talking about a man named Elijah. And the word Elijah means the Lord is my God. And he was a man who was ready to go to whatever threatening situations there were. He was a kind of man's man. Uh, I appreciate the Gibeons inviting Susan and me when I was here as pastor at Elkdale to a um, Passover meal. And at the end of the Passover meal, and boy, they drank a lot of wine at those Passover meals. But I appreciate them being nice to me, and they gave me, gave Susan and I... Um, a grape juice, and I think we were the only ones sober at the end of that meal. But at the end of the meal, they opened the door for Elijah to come back because Elijah is such a hero to the Jewish nation. And one of the visits that uh, Susan and I made while we were in Israel, and that was just an awesome visit for us, was to go to Mount Carmel. In Mount Carmel, they have this monument where Elijah took on 450 prophets of Baal and he showed them that God was God. And it was a brave kind of stance that he made in the middle of being outnumbered. He still knew that God was on his side and so he was ready to face whatever he had to face. But here's a place in his life that he struggled. And there's a place even in Elijah's life and in my life and in your life even in when life comes at us sometimes and we struggle to find something to hold on to in the middle of that. My uncle was a bombardier in a B-29, uh, my uncle Pelham. And uh, it was the um, airplane that was supposed to solve everything in the uh, Pacific but it had all its flaws, and they quickly threw it out there in order to use it, and yet it was struggling with a lot of places. And so a lot of crews crashed in the Pacific because everything wasn't worked out right in those B-29. My uncle was a, a bombardier. He was in front of the nose cone of that plane, which was f filled with plexiglass. He was right in the middle of it. He was stationed in Guam, and... And they would fly and make their bombing runs over Japan, and then they would fly back to Guam. But one thing that they didn't plan on, and, and the planners didn't plan on this, was the jet stream. And they didn't have the jet stream in Europe. And uh, when they were flying, if you were with the jet stream, you not only flew and got there long before you were supposed to, 
But they dropped their bombs and the bombs would land like 10 miles away from where their target was supposed to be. And then when they came back, they were up against the jet stream. And in coming back, uh, my uncle's plane ran out of fuel. And they had to land that plane on a Japanese runway. That was the only one. They, they tried to decide which one to go to. Well, ditch it in the Pacific or to go to this Japanese runway. And they said, take your chances with that Japanese runway. And so they landed completely out of fuel. And they were sitting there on this Japanese runway. And my uncle describes that moment. It was like, what's going to happen to us next? Because life gives you those things that say, what's going to happen to us next? And what's the next move? I don't have any fuel left. And I need some kind of help to survive that moment. And fortunately for my uncle, the Marines had just taken that airfield. And they were able to feel that aircraft would, and take off back to their destination. But it was an uncertain moment. Uncertain moment. Uh, Susan and I faced that uncertain moment in um, Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, she was having chest pains, and those chest pains were like uh, some kind of acid reflux. That's what it is. We just pass it off as acid reflux. And so we went to the office there, and we were at Billy Graham's Cove, which is a good place to be. They say he walks around that place at night, and I don't know whether he's there or not. But we were at that moment, and uh, so we went to urgent care, and urgent care said this, uh, you need to get her to the hospital. And she was saying, no, I want to go back to Farrell, which was like 10 hours away. And there's sometimes when a husband is right. Amen. Would you agree with that moment every now and then? So we went to urgent care and then we went to the emergency room and they said she's having a heart attack and you need to do something. Fear drove that moment, but it was the right kind of fear. Fear has its healthy parts and it has its unhealthy parts. And when do you listen to fear? Because fear has a voice. When do you listen to fear? When do you do what fear tells you to do? Now, um, psychologists have told us that you and I have three distinct needs in our lives. One of those is to love and to be loved. And Sigmund Freud, who was a dirty old man, but we listened to a lot of stuff that he did said that the basic need of our lives is love and be loved, and the Bible brings that out also. But Alfred Adler, who was his pupil, talked about how the basic need of our life is significance, and that we have all have inferiority complexes. And the way we deal with an inferiority complex is to act like we're in control, and we try to press forward a superiority complex, but it doesn't cover that up. So there's a sense in all of us need significance. And he was right. And Carl Jung said, no, no, that's not it. What we need is security. We need security. Because basically you and I have been insecure ever since 
Adam was in the garden and the first thing he said, first word that appeared there was I was afraid. And we all have those kind of fears. And we have most given command in scripture 366 times is listen to your wife. (laughs) It's given whether you take it or not. It is given and given and given and given. But it's stop being afraid or translated most times like fear not. Fear not. And it's given in significant times throughout scripture. And obviously God wants us to hear that because of all of us deal with our fears. My biggest fear is is, uh, heights. I'm scared of heights. And so God put me in the 82nd Airborne Division and I ended up jumping out of airplane. (laughs) But I got closer to God than any other time in my life. And every one of my jumps were night jumps because I went out closing my eyes and said, oh, Lord, help me. If you'll get me out of this, I'll be pastor at Elkdale Baptist Church and come be (laughs) the interim pastor at First Baptist Church in Selma. I offered God all kinds of bargains coming out of that plane. Um, Fears sometimes are things that we kind of um, imagine. And we have those kind of imaginary moments. We imagine this and imagine that. And we play it over in our mind. And those moments kind of come to us. One of the things that Susan and I like to do at uh, Fairhope is to go down and fish on the bay. Fishing in the bay is a great time for us. Uh, I grew up fly fishing. My dad taught me how to fly fish. I taught my kids how to fly fish. Uh, fishing in ponds, uh, farm ponds. But fishing in the Gulf is a different kind of thing. Fishing in the bay is a different kind of thing. There's a friend of ours who has a pier down there on the bay, and, and he has these big lights right there on the pier, and the redfish and the speckled trout come up there, and they'll feed around those, the minnows around those lights. And Susan and I will fly fish. She's my net girl. She will bring them in, and I'll kind of hook them and fight with them for a while, take the picture, and then throw them back out in the bay. I wouldn't eat anything out of that bay. That bay has some terrible things in it. So anyway, um, one night we'd been fishing, and it's a beautiful thing down there on the bay when the stars are up there, and it's just a beautiful sight. And I'd caught a couple of fish. We took the picture and then threw them back in. Uh, and so we started walking out. As we were starting walking out, it's about, it was almost 50 or 75 yards, I suppose, to our car. And it was a dark night, and it was, we were walking along, and all of a sudden I looked over there, and there was this coyote. And there were all these kind of rumors around Fairhope about that time about rabid coyotes. And, and ever since I was a little boy, I always feared rabies and what would happen to that. And so we looked over there, we shined our light on the coyote and, and I thought, well, I'll be brave enough. You know, uh, they tell you um, in out west when you're being stalked by a mountain lion, you don't run away, you can't outrun that mountain lion. So you turn around and walk towards it. And that takes a lot of courage to turn around and walk towards a mountain lion. So I turned around and walked towards this coyote and I said, boo! 
and the thing didn't move. And so I pray, I'm, we prayed the 23rd Psalm, and uh, so what are we going to do? So we walked around that coyote and got in our car, and we, um, we text our sons and said, sons, you can trust us. We can handle coyote. So the next day I was at church, and I was telling my friend about it, and uh, he said, that's a decoy that he uses to keep, <laughs> keep the geese away. <laughs> but it took 20 years off mine and Susan's life. Because <laughs> we kind of imagine the worst sometimes. So what do we hold on to when it's not? an imagination, what do we hold on to when it's real? And one of the hardest prayers I had was with a lady who was having, a gynecologist was having surgery with her. And after the surgery, she would never be able to have children again. And she cried. And it was a tough moment. Because there are times that life throws us things that are hard for us to deal with. And when you're thrown those kind of things, how do you handle it? Well, let's read about Elijah if you have your Bibles. And that's my introduction to my sermon. Amen. Are you still there with me? Chapter 19, just in honor of God's word, would you stand? Verse 1 is Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had split from the southern kingdom. And David's line was in the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom separated themselves from David's line. There were 19 kings in the northern kingdom. They existed for 200 years. Every one of them was a godless king. But Ahab's father was the worst of the lot, Omri. And so Omri died, and he didn't give Ahab a whole lot of attention. And so he kind of grew up watching his father do ungodly kind of things. And as a result, he married a lady named Jezebel. And Jezebel was a Sidonian from Sidon. And she not only came to be the queen at, at Israel or the northern kingdom, but she brought her, her 450 prophets of Baal and also the 400 prophets of Aseroth. And she began killing all the Hebrew prophets and putting her prophets in play. And the nation kept going down and down and down. So God's going to bring judgment upon the northern kingdom. But he gives Elijah and Elisha one last chance before the Assyrians come. And I wonder, I just wonder, how many chances God's going to give us before the judgment fall. Now look at verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. 
how he had uh, killed all the prophets on Mount Carmel. So Jezebel said, well, I'll, I'll handle him. So Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, so let the gods do to me. That's a vow. She makes this vow. May the gods do to me unless I take your life. And I'm coming after you, Elijah. I'm coming after you. So uh, what does he do in verse 3? This man of God, what does he do? How do you handle a mean woman? Would you turn around and tell somebody how you handle me? Because I don't know. I mean, I need to understand these things. Uh, Jezebel is about as mean as they come. She was active. Ahab was passive. Um, Ahab was henpecked. Any of you know a henpecked husband? Any, any members of this church henpecked husbands? It's... It's okay if you got a good hen. Amen, if you got a good hen. <laughs> but she is mean, and she spares no uh, things to come after Elijah. So here's what this great man of God does. And when he saw that, if you have one translation said, and fear came upon his life. First time he kind of experienced it. And he arose and ran for his life. What about those times when God helped him to face the odds? Somehow they kind of fade in the distance. And he came to Beersheba, which is the extent of uh, Jezebel's reign. And he left his servant there. Now he's all alone. And that's a tough place to be when you're afraid. May God bless the reading of his word and you may be seated. I just flip back a few pages in verse 17. Uh, excuse me, chapter 17. We're first introduced to Elijah as he comes in front of King Ahab. And he confronts King Ahab with the situation of the nation. And he said, it's God's going to spare rain in this area. Until I tell it so. I'm God's man and I'm here to stand before you. And I'm here to let you know that I represent the Lord. And you're the king but I represent the Lord. And somebody in our nation needs to stand up in some places and say. You know this is wrong. This is not right. And the Lord has put that on my heart. And I want to see, I want you to know that something needs to be done about this. And then he runs. Because God told him to run. And he's in the witness protection program. And he sends him out in the wilderness out there. Somewhere around Uniontown, he sends him around there in the witness protection program. Nobody will find you around Uniontown. But as he's there, God... Fed him in the wilderness. God gave him a widow who gave him oil for something to eat. And God took care of him. He was a very courageous man and he's willing to take on any situation as long as God tells him to take on something. 
He's also very insightful, and he says, listen, there are all these prophets of Baal, and they're having all their day. And so he has his, all the people come together, and he says, let's have a trial here. If God is God, you serve God. Why halt you between two opinions? Why do you bounce in the world over here when you're in the world and these idols? And why do you bounce over here with God? You're trying to hold these two together and they're opposites. You cannot hold them together. You've got to choose if you're going to put God first or if you're going to put the world and the culture first. Jesus said it like this. No man can serve two masters. Either he will serve the one and let go of the other. But so often what's happening in our churches is we hold on to this world when we want the world and their part. And then we go back to God when we want God for this kind of part. And so God, uh, Elijah said, let's see if a real God is a real God and let him answer prayer. And so he called down fire from heaven. And the 450 prophets cut themselves and bounced around and bounced around. And Elijah made fun of him. And Elijah did a 20-minute prayer, 20-second prayer. God show him who's God. And fire came down from heaven and consumed the altar. And so Elijah had the 450 prophets of Baal killed. That's the Old Testament solution to a lot of problems. So he's, he's been running, he's been doing this, and he just kind of spent. And it looked like there was a revival and something ought to happen. The whole nation ought to turn. If they'll turn, then God will stay the Assyrians that are coming. But it's amazing how much we're exposed to and how little it changes our lives. The nation did not move. And Elijah was disappointed. And that disappointment ran deep. He had put everything he could into that. He had spent himself. He had gone red line, which was also physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And it didn't happen. And so he's disappointed. Disappointment has a way of worming itself into our life. So if you look, in, look back at chapter 19, verse 1, do you see how he gets so into pity with himself? And all of us can go and get into self-pity. And self-pity says, uh, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm going to the garden and eat worms. Have you ever been there? When in trouble, when in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. Amen. So he goes into self-pity, but he is exhausted physically. He's exhausted emotionally. He's exhausted spiritually. And he thought things were going to happen that didn't happen. So how do you deal with that? Well, on top of that, Jezebel says, I'm coming after you. And so on top of that, he has fear that it has to deal with. And so he's disappointed and he's exhausted physically and 
And so it, uh, Jezebel comes to him and said, I'm coming after you. On top of that, fear happens. So what do you do? So he runs for his life. In verse 4, if you have your Bible, let's see how God deals with him. I, I really appreciate this because there are times that I find myself in an Elijah syndrome. And when we poured ourselves out spiritually and in the church and we've had all these kind of movements in the church and everybody said they were great for a while, but after a while they go back to those same old habits and those same old ways. And if you're a spiritual leader, sometimes it can get you so down. This is what happened. He left his servant there. Um, If you look in verse 3, he uh, left his servant there because he needs somebody to speak into his life. And the more isolated you come, the more dangerous you come. All of us need a Christian friend. And I hope you've got a Christian friend who will speak to you in your life, in your moment, to help you see things that you don't see on your own. And you'll miss on your own. And it's amazing how we can justify things that we need to listen to and hear God speak to our place. So he gave us, he left his servant there, so he's all alone. He went a journey in the wilderness and came and sat under a juniper tree. A juniper tree is like a bush that grows in the desert. They grow in West Texas also. I don't know, they they call them trees, but they're bushes. But anyway, any of you know West Texas? They send their kids to school 20 miles away and sit on the porch and look at them while they're there. Because there's nothing to obscure the view. <laughs> anyway, he sits under a juniper tree. You ever been under that juniper tree? Been on your back porch rocking? And you say, where is this going? Are you still there, God? Do you still care about me? So in verse 6, he looked and behold, there was a cake baked under him coals. And I don't know what kind of cake that was, but he went in the strength of that cake for 40 miles. I'd like to have that cake. Sometimes I need that cake, especially in the morning. And God told him to go to sleep. That's a good thing, but not in church. Amen. Sleep is a good thing, but if you go to sleep in church, it is an unpardonable sin to sleep in church. So he arose and did eat and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, that's a scripture that appears quite often, 40 days. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And he sends them to a place called Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. But what I like here is that God didn't say to him, Elijah, you're messing up. You all know better. There are times that I know better, but I don't need God to just jump on my case. I don't need people to jump on my case. I need an encouragement. So he takes him to Mount Horeb, which is uh, Mount Sinai. And he asked him this question, verse 9, and he came there into a cave and he lodged there. He said, what are you doing in this cave? And I know some people that have gone through churches that have split 
and they give up and said, I'm done. And they go and hide in the cave. And they just give up. So he goes and he hides in a cave and he said, and God's asking him this question. God's a great asker of questions. He knows the answer, but he just gives you a chance to kind of unload. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah goes into his self-pity sermon and he says this and says that and nobody loves me and everybody hates me and I'm no better than my fathers. My fathers have tried and they didn't make it, so I've tried and I just quit. So God lets him kind of unload his heart. And that's a good thing to do. Uh, Susan and I uh, have Bible study for our young professionals, Sunday school class we have. And, and uh, I asked the girls that come, came to our class, I said, what do you want me to tell your husbands um, about you, about how to handle women? And so they said this. We want them to talk, stop telling us what to do. We want them to just kind of listen to what we have to say. Without saying you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do this. Just sit down and listen to my feelings and help hear my heart while I'm trying to pour out my heart to you. And one wife was talking about, not in this group, but a wife was talking about whenever she got up to speak, um, her palms were sweaty. And she said, whenever I get up to speak, my mouth is dry. And so her husband said, you just need to lick your palms. <laughs> that sound like a husband answer? Here's a salute, just lick your palms. Because men try to fix it and they come up with simple answers that are really not relevant. I didn't want you to tell me what to do. I wanted you to hear how I feel. Because I need somebody to understand my feet. In verse 11, God says, go forth from a cave. And he steps out of that cave and there's this fireworks display. There's a lightning, there's a thunder, there's all this kind of earthquakes, the power of God. And what God is telling him, I can take care of Jezebel. Jezebel's not a big problem to me. But what you need, Elijah, is to block out that fear, that voice of fear that is screaming inside your soul. And hear the still, small voice of God. Most powerful thing in this world is not an earthquake or any of those, or tornadoes. It's the still, small voice. Maybe today God's trying to get in touch with you to just spend some time and get back in touch with that still, small voice. It was amazing to me how 
I watched that football game in the NFL where the guy died on the field and how people gathered in prayer groups calling out to God and the ACLU didn't even show up. But it was a hush that was there. And people began to just listen to God's voice in this moment. There's a um, Methodist preacher who was a very famous um, Methodist preacher. And he talked about a pilot who was uh, a Navy pilot who had started out over the ocean. And as he started out over the ocean, he heard this gnawing inside the cables to the, his aircraft. And he knew what it was. It was some kind of rat that somehow gotten into the into the controls and was gnawing through those cables. And he knew if he went through those cables, then he would lose control of the aircraft. So he said, what was I do? He was too far out to come back. And he said, this, I'll take it to a higher level. And he took it to a higher level. And the gnawing got less and less and less until it faded. I don't know what you're facing, but I know what I have to do when I'm facing those things. I have to take it to a higher level because that fear kind of just gnaws on and gnaws and just stays there. But if you take it to a higher level and I go through scripture and I find those scriptures, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known unto God. And the peace that cannot be explained. The world doesn't have it and the world doesn't take it away. But all of us are, have, have had those moments when we just needed God to speak to us in those moments. We've had times and then when we kind of walked away from God and we start listening to that fear voice that finds its way inside of our heart. And we just need a moment with God and to get back in touch with his voice in that still small voice. Now I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. And let me just tell you a time, well, um, keep your eyes for just a second. Um, one Monday, Monday is when preachers think not. I'd been preaching at Elkdale in the morning and the afternoon and had a sermon that night and I was just dried out. And I went to um, Birmingham to a conference there. A guy named Bill Hobbles was having a conference. And he had this singer to stand up and sing, and her name was Damien Carball, and she sang, he's been faithful to me. Every moment, his mercies I see. And Bill Hobble says, I want you to do something. Would you just kind of reach out your hand and receive what God has for you this morning? And all of a sudden, I reached out and I had this kind of refilling experience. I didn't speak in tongues or anything crazy like that. But I think tongues is a very valid gift, but I've never had it. But I felt God's presence kind of coming inside my soul 
and filling those kind of empty places in me that I needed. Now, I'm going to ask uh, Murray, our hymn of invitation is trust in Jesus, trusting as the moments fly, trusting as the days go by, trusting him whatever befall, trusting Jesus, that is all. So would you bow your heads if you feel like you can do this? Uh, just, um, I'm not going to call you out. It's just between you and the Lord. Maybe you need to just hold your hands out for God to give you a fresh refilling of his presence so that you can hear his voice speaking to you. And Murray's going to play the first stanza of that song, Trust in Jesus.